So throughout Holy Scripture, there is a theme known as the wilderness. And the wilderness is defined throughout Holy Scripture as an uncultivated and uninhabited and inhospitable place. The wilderness throughout Scripture is likened to a desert, a place of desolation, a place of abandonment, a place of utter ruin. Throughout Scripture, the wilderness figures prominently throughout the history of God's people with reference to Hagar, with reference to Moses, God's people in Exodus and exile, Elijah and David, John the Baptist, and many, many more, including Jesus Christ. And while primarily describing a geographical place where God's people wandered, were tested, were judged, and blessed, the wilderness is also used throughout Scripture metaphorically, allegorically, to describe spiritual wandering or spiritual testing and blessing. The wilderness is also a place of divine revelation, and not only where God reveals his name, I am, but also where God is actually named, as we discover in our Old Testament lessons this evening, Genesis 16 in particular. So the wilderness is a lot of things. The wilderness is also a place of refuge, believe it or not. It's the place where Elijah and David fled. It's where Jesus retreated for preparation, for solitude, and for prayer. It is a place from which blessing and literally salvation comes. It is a place where God leads his people through the pillar of cloud, the crossing of the Red Sea, where God's provision is undeniable in the form of manna, the place where dependence upon God is heightened and where God's people are called to trust, where God often displays his readiness to act on behalf of his people to bring restoration and give new life. In many ways, the wilderness is a place of new beginnings. Yet the elephant in the room here is that to encounter and experience God in these ways, it means that one has already entered into the wilderness, often through exodus and or exile. So today marks my second Sunday as your rector. We made it. <laughs> and while I have a long way to go to get to know many of you, to remember your names and to listen to what God is up to in your life, I can honestly say that I have met many of you. I have been in many of your homes already, and I have spent some time sharing conversations with many of you after church, in coffee shops, and through texts. And what has become clear to me in just 17 days, in just these past few weeks, is that some of us actually feel like we're wandering in the wilderness of life. Life is messy for some of us, both in this room and outside this room this evening. Uncertainty prevails, and there is reason to question what God is actually up to in the story of our lives. And for those of us who are living our best life now, well, the wilderness may not be too far from you. So over the next few weeks, during this season of Lent, we're going to journey together as a church into where all the wild things are, as we walk with Hagar, as we walk with Moses and David and John the Baptist 
and Jesus Christ into the wilderness of their lives, both physically, spiritually. And my hope and my prayer has been, and my hope and my prayer will be for us this, that we discover the ways God reveals himself to each one of these people, and that we too would experience anew the wonder and the work of God in the story of our lives, that we would take comfort in the God who hears, the God who sees us, the God who loves us and offers us hope, light, and life in the messiness of our lives and in our own wilderness wanderings. Lord, will you do this work in us? Will you bless the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth? Amen. So in our Old Testament lessons this evening, we encounter the story of Hagar, a story that really does challenge and shapes faith. To be honest, the story of Hagar is a story that I find difficult to read, both with and without modern sensibilities. I mean, what if this were just played? Think about this. What if the story of Hagar that we read was a silent film on screen? Just an Egyptian slave girl whose fertile body is put into service by her owner's futile attempts to fabricate God's blessing in their lives, resulting in single motherhood, subjected cruelty and oppression, humiliation, and flight towards certain death in the wilderness as the only means of her survival, whereby this foreign slave girl then encounters a messenger of God who says to her, be blessed, with the subsequent disclaimer, you got to go back and submit to the harsh realities that you're trying to escape. Welcome to the wilderness, right? I mean, no matter how we parse this out, it is a very difficult story. Yet, it is one we must not hide ourselves from or pretend doesn't exist. If anything, we need to reflect well on the story of Hagar which I hope to demonstrate is nothing less than the story of God in the story of our lives, which is to say there is much more than meets the modern eyes, the modern sensibilities within and throughout this story. So what are we to make of Hagar and her story? You ready? Let's dive in. So in the first four verses of Genesis 16, we discover what I would call a competing vision of human futility. And it stands in opposition to that of God's, whereby God had already revealed to Abram that he would have a son of his own flesh and blood, and that through him his offspring would be as vast as the stars in the sky. We see this in Genesis 15, verses 4 through 5. The preceding chapter. In other words, the competing vision of human futility is Sarah and Abram's lack of faith in God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. 
Abram agreed to what Sarah said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. In many ways, Sarai and Abram have what can only be characterized as tunnel vision. You know what I mean by that, right? Their vision is locked onto a particular thing or event. In this case, their vision is locked onto Sarai's womb. But this ought not surprise us. Throughout history, there have been many cultures where children were equated with blessing. The legitimacy of a marriage or the worth of a woman, both socio, social and economic legitimacy, so to speak. Whereas barrenness throughout these cultures in the history of the world carried with it all sorts of stigma, social, religious, and communal exclusion, despair, personal, mental, emotional, physical, even marital and familial. And so it's not surprising that they had come face to face with their own limits, asking, can God be trusted? Will there be an heir? Lord, is there still a future? How is God going to keep God's promises? And it's here that we can begin to hear the reverberating labor pains, those impatient groanings from the primeval curse that we heard read in Romans. For Sarai and Abram, God's promise is tarrying too long, leaving them in limbo, which is to say that what we discover here is that Sarai and Abram are in their own wilderness of uncertainty. In other words, faith is not easy for Sarai and Abram. To believe in the impossible is a call for persistence, a call that is often against common sense in all present data. And so the same temptation from the beginning to be like God comes to the fore in the form of a human plan that is not what God intended. And so I want to note a few things here. I do not pretend in any way, form, or fashion to know the motivations of Sarai's heart when it comes to her plan and her and Abram's actions. What I do know is that it was culturally acceptable for barren women with servants to give a servant to her husband as a lower-level wife with the expectation that any children born to the surrogate mother could be adopted by the head wife. In fact, this was a socially acceptable practice at that time in the ancient Near East. Not only does the Code of Hammurabi endorse this practice, it is the very way that Leah and Rachel will adopt sons later throughout subsequent passages in the biblical narrative. Whether or not it was an acceptable practice is not the point. 
It was not the plan God intended. And often, if not always, pursuing the plans of God according to our own understanding and or in ways God does not intend for our lives, well, it doesn't end well. And so what we discover with Sarai's plan is that it would soon result in opposition to her own offspring, not to mention great hardship between herself and her husband Abram and herself and others, and herself and Abram and others, namely Hagar and then Hagar and Ishmael. Now there's another thing I'd like to note here, and that is that there is a very interesting narrative structure in Genesis 16, 2 through 3, that not only echoes, but also follows the exact same narrative structure found in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve fall prey to their own undoing through a human futile scheme. Like their first parents, as you can see on the outline that I have provided, like their first parents, Sarah speaks. The woman, Eve, said, Abram listens. Adam listened to Eve. Sarah takes Hagar in the same way Eve took the forbidden fruit. And Sarah gave Hagar to her husband. In the same way Eve gives the forbidden fruit to her husband. In its entirety, Sarai's plan represents the futility of human efforts to achieve God's blessing. And like all the other plans and schemes of those in the previous narratives, Adam and Eve, Cain, Babel, Lot and Sodom, on and on, Sarah and Abram striving to circumvent God's plan of blessing in favor of gaining a blessing on their own is nothing more than a human solution. So what about Hagar? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, those same parallels in Genesis 16 and Genesis 3 also establish a narrative association between Hagar's story and that of the fall, which is to say that Hagar represents the forbidden fruit, the result of which will be a recapitulation of the curse with all its accompanying consequences, blame-shifting, enmity between one another, flight and hiding, and judgment. For the text says, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, enmity. Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering, blame-shifting. Now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me, enmity. So may the Lord judge between you and me, judgment. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreats Hagar, again, enmity. And so she fled from her, flight. There is a good bit of food for thought here, right? Now, before we move on, I think it's also vital to highlight one more 
narrative link related to Hagar and all that she represents prior, prior to her flight into the wilderness. At the beginning of our passage, we learn a great deal about Hagar's identity. She was first and foremost an Egyptian. Her name was Hagar, which means forsaken or flight. She was a servant slave. She was an Egyptian servant slave. And she was Abram's Isa, Abram's wife, through conjugal relations. And other than the meaning of her name and how it is demonstrated in her way of life, forsaken and in flight, Hagar is an Egyptian. And what is striking to me about this, about her geographical location or her geographical origin, that is to say, is that in the preceding chapter, Genesis 15, verses 8 through 21, God's covenant with Abram entails the very geographical regions that will encompass the lands Abram's descendants will receive from the very hand of God, but not without struggle. Because if you continue to read the entire Pentateuch as it was intended to be read, right, Old Testament students in here? All five books were intended to be read as a whole. Then you will soon encounter Deuteronomy 7, particularly 7 verses 1 through 6, where God instructs his people not to take foreign wives from those lands that he will lead them into. So all this is to say... Hagar not only represents the forbidden fruit, but also the forbidden people of the land. The people of God are instructed to drive out, defeat, and utterly destroy. Now, if you're wondering why in the world would God instruct his people to destroy other people, well, David Olinskis has offered to sit down with you and to give you all the answers to your questions. I'll buy you coffee for that. (laughs) Now, the main reason I'm highlighting these aspects, these narrative associations, is to say that there certainly is more than meets the eyes when we consider the whole theological context at play within the canon as a whole. So let's continue. Through verses 4 through 6, Hagar becomes pregnant. Hagar looks down on Sarai. Sarai afflicts Hagar, and Hagar flees into the wilderness. And as a consequence of looking down upon her mistress, Hagar is forced into the wilderness by way of Sarai's mistreatment. And this is really interesting, because the word for mistreatment that we find in our English translation in Hebrew is affliction. It's the exact same word that's used to describe the very affliction that the people of God will experience before they go through exodus and exile in the same wilderness. And it is here we encounter a kind of subplot, a break within the broader Abrahamic story where there is a major shift from the household of Abram to the wilderness where we find Hagar homebound on her way back to Egypt. And the placeholder or the landmarker is the well of Shur. It's on the outskirts of the land of Egypt. 
The text reads, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answers. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, just when you thought the association between Genesis 16 and Genesis 3 had come to the end, we encounter a God who pursues humanity in their flight. Genesis 3.8, who asks a very similar question, where have you come from and where are you going? Genesis 3.9, and offers a renewed hope of blessings sounded amid the chaotic chords of despair. The first gospel pronounced in Genesis 3.15. You see, God pursues Hagar, and God pursues Hagar in the wilderness which represents her forsakenness and her flight. And what does God do? God sees her affliction. God listens to her cries, and God responds with blessing. In fact, God offers Hagar the same blessing which Abraham will soon receive later in Genesis 17, 20, concerning Ishmael. And it is a blessing similar to the one that Abram had already received in Genesis 15, 4. The message Hagar receives from God is that the Lord will increase her descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Genesis 16, verse 10. And Genesis 17, 20. And it is for this very reason that Hilary of Poitiers, the fourth century bishop and doctor of the church, I know I botched that French, sorry, Lindsay, um, compared Hagar's theophany to Abraham's, elevating her experience of divine revelation to the level of the patriarchs. In fact, among all the patriarchs, Hagar is the only woman to receive these words. Isn't it amazing? The ways of God. That a story of forsakenness and flight became, becomes a story of being found. That a story of forsakenness and flight becomes a story of being seen, being heard, and being blessed by God. And that God does all this in the wilderness, in the place of ruin, abandonment, and desolation. God makes it the place of blessing for the banished one. God intervenes and God provides an opportunity for Hagar to be seen, for Hagar to be heard, and to receive blessing in such a way that she is now able to step back into the story from a detour 
and to do so as one who knows God, who names God, because God knows, sees, and hears her. In his homilies on Genesis, early church father John Chrysostom says that Hagar exemplifies God's compassion, that Hagar exemplifies God's care for the lowly, for the outcast, for the marginalized, for the excluded, and that the angel's visitation dignifies her abject situation. Hagar experiences God's compassionate care in the wilderness. And though, to be honest, there remains an unsettling degree of uncertainty, specifically in relation to the divine instruction for her to go back and to submit to Sarai, which will eventually result in another episode of exile and abandonment, what is clear is that God is for her. And I think it is very vital to note here that the subsequent text, Genesis 16, 15 through 16, Genesis 21, 8 through 10, evidence to us that she does go back. She did go back, and she did so on her own volition, which is to say that her encounter with God gives her agency to participate in the plan God intends. And she moves forward in that faith in so many ways, what a reversal, eh? In this way, Hagar not only receives blessing, but then represents the blessing of those whom God will bless through his promise, Isaac. Which is to say that what we discover in this wilderness story is God's concern for and pursuit of those who stand outside that line. God's blessing to the nations of which we are part. And it's in moments like these where it all comes full circle, right? Where God's word and the story of God within the story of Hagar's life reminds us how God is faithfully active within the story of our lives. The way God cares for, the way God pursues, listens, and responds to Hagar is the same way God has and continues to pursue you and I. It is the same way God pursues us, sees us, listens to us, and acts on our behalf. But that's not all. There's one final episode that we must not neglect, which is this, Hagar names God. Did you know that Hagar is the only person in the Hebrew Bible who names God? And as a side note, more food for thought here, Hagar is also the first woman in Holy Scripture to hear an Annunciation. She is the only woman other than the Virgin Mary to receive a divine promise in connection with her descendants. She's the first woman to weep for her dying child in the place of desolation and the first woman outsider who encounters God and God's revelation at a well that will be revisited time and time and time again. I think it is for these reasons that some have actually said that Hagar foreshadows Israel's pilgrimage of faith through contrast, yet with many differences. She experiences and endures exodus. She experiences and receives God's revelation. She wanders in exile. She receives promise 
and the unmerited favor from the God who sees, hears, and provides. Hagar is an extraordinary figure. Hagar names God, El Roy, the God of seeing, or more precisely transliterated, the God who sees me and the God who is seen. And though not explicit in the text, what is implicitly assumed in the narrative as a canonical whole is restoration. Might I suggest redemption of her afflicted body in her history, the wonderful work of God amid Hagar's wilderness wanderings. After all, her son's name is Ishmael, which means God hears. And this is good news, church, that God sees us, that God hears us, that God hears our cries, that God loves us, that God pursues us, and that God acts on our behalf. Amen? The story of Hagar is a powerful story. It's a powerful story of exodus and struggle and of how God meets us in the midst of what we are going through. And at the end of the day, Hagar shows us that even when we wander in wilderness places, even when the circumstances of our lives are uncertain and completely out of order, God is for us. And God is with us. God sees us, hears us, cares for us. God loves us. And this is the good news. God comes for us. God dies for us. God resurrects for us. And God ascends for us. And God empowers us. And God sends us out to feast on the bread of life so that we can participate in that life for the life of this world that is wandering in wilderness. This is good news. May we trust in his promises. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.